False expectations are a plague of our lives, aren't they? We are born with false expectations. We expect things out of life that life just doesn't deliver. And it ends up in discouragement and doubt and failure. But even after we come to Christ, think about when we come to Jesus, we're babes in Christ and we are filled with false expectations. You know, read the Gospels. Read them with your eyes open. Look at all the false thoughts and expectations that Jesus has to overcome in the lives of the disciples. But we have false expectations about tons of things in our life. Think about marriage. You grow up, especially girls, thinking about the wedding and all the stuff and all the bliss and puppies and rainbows that will follow. And, and you get into it and you go, wow, I didn't marry the perfect guy after all, did I? Or guys, I didn't marry the... No, I settled it for you. Take the pressure off. You didn't. Because there's only one perfect and that's Jesus. And marriage is a blessed thing and there's a lot of joy in it. But there's a lot of work too. And there's a need for a lot of grace. And you have to forgive one another for a lot of stuff. If you're going to be able to stay together. How about success? You have all these false expectations of success. And to whatever extent you achieve success the way we define it anyway. Which is usually money and stuff. The more you achieve the more you want. In other words it doesn't satisfy. You thought it would. It kind of leaves you empty. Ted Turner said that all of the stuff that he had, billionaire, talking to Barbara Walters, she asked him what it was like to be so big and to have so much, and he was honest enough to say, it's an empty bag. Solomon would say the same thing. Vanity. Temporary. It won't satisfy. Having children. You look forward to having children and Again, you surround that thought with puppies and rainbows and what you get is a little sinner. If you hadn't figured that out yet, you hadn't had a baby very long. That needs direction and discipline and help and pointing to Jesus. And again, it's hard and it's a lot of hard work. But it's a, it's a fruitful, and there's joy mixed in. I'm not saying there's not. New job. I mean, how about salvation? We come into salvation with all sorts of false expectations. And we run into a lot of doubt and discouragement, especially if we've been taught false theology about what to expect. But even without that, we just come with meism. <laughs> God's about me and me being happy. And, and, well, he's about you being joyful in him and holy, but it's about Jesus and you being conformed to his image. Just a few illustrations. that We have all sorts of false expectations. The disciples of Jesus were filled with false expectations. The people of Jesus' day were filled with false expectations about the Messiah that they hoped would come. There was a lot of talk about Messiah during this time. And there was a lot of thought that the political deliverer is coming. The one who will crush the Romans. The one who will set the Jews back at the center of everything. The one who will fix everything is coming. They understood the gospel, the, I mean the Messiah, the, to be the coming conquering king. They missed the suffering servant in places like Isaiah 53. They're looking for the, common, the coming conqueror who will set them free from the boot of the Romans. 
Well, as we enter in here, it's Passover week in Israel. Pilgrims are flocking from all over. On one Passover, you know that Josephus reports that they were 2.7 million people who came to Passover. Now, you've seen pictures of Jerusalem, and that's a, that's a, that's a lot of people. 2.7 million. Over 2 million would gather. They're celebrating the Passover. There were three times of year when everybody had to go and gather around the temple in Jerusalem. And it was, it was Passover, it was Pentecost, and it was Tabernacles. And so we're, we are in Passover. We have all four of the Gospels that report this. We know without a shadow of a doubt it's Passover week. Um, and so they're there to celebrate the Lord's delivering Israel from Egypt through the death of the firstborn and to celebrate the Lord's protection and deliverance of Israel through the death of the Passover lamb with the blood on the doorpost and the lintel so that the angel of death passed over God's people but struck the Egyptians and therefore through that last plague having shamed all of their gods through those plagues he delivered his people from Egypt and he commanded that they remember it. But this Passover, which had a feast associated, a meal associated with it, this Passover is different. This is the Passover. This is the one where the Passover lamb is present and will be sacrificed. And that is Jesus, the true Passover. The one John, John the Baptist saw when he pointed his disciples to go and follow Jesus. Now he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the fulfillment of all those sacrifices, is the Son of God who would come and die. The Messiah is present, the Passover Lamb, and He must die to take away sin. So the people are looking for a political deliverer. They do not see the suffering servant. They will hail His entry five days later. Not necessarily the same crowd. Mixed crowd in both occasions. But five days later, public opinion will go from hail to the king to crucify him. Away with him. Let his blood be on us and our children in five days. Because he didn't meet their expectations. Instead of being enthroned, this king will be buried. And they misunderstood Jesus. We suffer in that same way. But as we grow in grace, those misunderstandings are corrected. Well, today I want to look at the triumphal entry. I want to show you just a few indications that they misunderstood Jesus. Uh, then we'll just think briefly about how we might misunderstand Jesus. It's one of the things I want us to be doing over the next week is praying, God, how have I misunderstood you? What needs to be corrected? What do I need to see differently according to your word? But this morning we'll look at, at verses 12, uh, really through, through 15, but brief comment on, on the others. And uh, see that uh, the reason I titled it Misunderstanding Jesus is that what, that's what these people are doing at this point. And then the main takeaway I want you to go away with is we misunderstand Jesus when we fail to rightly understand and apply his word to our situation. We misunderstand Jesus when we fail to rightly understand and apply his word to our situation. Because they, their hope for the conquering king was based on scripture. It was just scripture. Wrong, the wrong timing. 
Because the Old Testament, you see, like Isaiah 53, you see the suffering servant coming. You also see the conquering king. They didn't see the gap between the two. They called it disregarded. This one and focused on the one that sounded better. <laughs> we misunderstand. We do it all the time. We misunderstand Jesus when we fail to rightly understand and apply his word to our situation. Well, look at the first sign that they misunderstood. This is in verse 12. It says, the next day, the large crowd. Remember, this is, there are a lot of people in Jerusalem at this point, and a lot of them are coming out. It says, the next day, the large crowd had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. You know, from later in the text, they've also heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And signs are big to the Jewish people, so. They heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. I'm going to stop right there. The branches of the palm trees are the first sign that they're misunderstanding Jesus. We call it Palm Sunday if we're following that calendar. But the palm waving is a misunderstanding of Jesus at this point. Because in the Old Testament, palms were part of the tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. They were not part of the Passover. You go back and read it in the, Old, in the Old Testament. So why are they waving palm branches at Jesus when he's coming into the city? Because there are no palm branches mentioned for Passover. Well, there was some historical development in the intertestamental period. That's between the writing of the Old Testament, the stop in the 400 years before the writing of the first book again. And in the intertestament, or testamental, that's hard to say, period, the Jews were under Syrian occupation at this time. They've been under a lot of occupation because of their sin. A lot of bondage. But they were under Syrian occupation, and a Jewish man, Mattathias, wanted to deliver the temple and the nation from the Syrians. So he becomes, he, he sort of forms this guerrilla group. Guerrilla warfare, they're not numerous enough to just come at them straight up. But guerrilla warfare, they would fight against the Syrians and seek to, to run. They wanted to be, have the temple be free and have, have the, the, the occupation of the Syrians, you know, be over. Well, it's okay. <laughs> Mattathias didn't accomplish that purpose, but his son, you might have heard of his son, Judas Maccabeus. Judas the Hammer. Sounds tough, right? Well, Judas the Hammer wrought such havoc on the Syrians that in 164 BC, they decided to release the temple and allow the Jews to practice their religion. And a new feast comes about because of that. Maybe you've heard of it. The Feast of Dedication or Lights. Hanukkah. And then Judas's brother, Simon Maccabeus, actually drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem. And he was proclaimed a national hero. And they made a parade for him. And in that parade, there was music and celebration and waving of palm branches. The palm branch became a national symbol for a military conqueror and a victory. They're hailing a military conqueror with the palm branch. That's where that got started. 
So the misunderstanding, number one, of the people is they are hailing Jesus as the military conqueror that they've been looking for. They are symbolizing that with the national symbol of military victory as he's coming into Jerusalem because they've heard great things about him. And they now see that he's coming into Jerusalem and in their minds he's coming in to take over. He's entering as a conqueror in their minds who will rout the Romans and restore the Jewish nation. The truth is he will come again as the conquering king. But at that point he was coming as the suffering servant. He would not fulfill their expectation at that point. And he had told his disciples over and over, we are going and the Son of Man will be betrayed and killed and will raise from the grave. But they didn't get that yet. They missed that part. Because they too have this hope of him taking over. Interesting side note about palm branches. You know where else we find palm branches in celebration? Besides tabernacles? We find it in Revelation. I'll just read this for you right quick. But in Revelation 7, 9 to 10... The heavenly celebration, heavenly worship. It said, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the, the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and with what? Palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But that salvation came about not through a king who came in and conquered Jerusalem at that point but through a king who came in and sacrificed himself on behalf of his people. So the first sign that they're misunderstanding things is the palm branches. The second sign is the scripture they're quoting. It says this, so they took, in verse 13, they took palm branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying. Now watch this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Blessed is he. Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Lord save now. Lord deliver now. And, and it comes from Psalm 118 that I read. Psalm 118, 25 to 26 says this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So that Hosanna is the save us. Save us now. Give us success. Save now. Deliver now, Lord. They're looking for deliverance and success now. They're looking for a political deliverer. Jesus was coming to save now, but not in the way they expected. He wasn't coming into Jerusalem to rout the Romans at that point. He wasn't coming in as the conquering king. He was coming in as the one who would sacrifice himself to save his people. If he doesn't do that, we have no salvation. He was coming to die. And the deliverance from captivity he was bringing was deliverance from captivity and sin. And that related to them, which they missed it, didn't understand it. It relates to us, and sometimes we miss it and don't understand it. And before we come to Christ, we always miss it. 
I mean, even Jesus' contemporaries missed it. Look in John 8, 31 to 36. It says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, evidently a, a surface belief, mental assent, not all the way trust. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now look how they answer. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. They're enslaved to the Romans at that moment. But he's pointing out a slavery that they don't want to talk about. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The son comes to live for us, to die for us, to raise for us, to offer to us a free salvation. And that salvation is him applying his sacrifice to us so that we're forgiven of our sins and him setting us free from progressively from the power of sin and from the slavery in sin. But they wanted deliverance from the Romans, not the suffering, dying king who would set them free from their real need. This was their real need and it's your real need. If you're here today and you're not trusting in Jesus, this is what you need an answer for. Slavery and sin. Sin. Failing to keep God's commandments in thought, word, and deed. Sinning against Him. Loving things other than Him. Pursuing other things and therefore disregarding and joyfully disobeying Him. Before you die, you need an answer for your sin. And you can do that yourself if you have been perfect in obedience and thought, word, and deed since you've been born. If you have not kept God's law, His commandments in thought, word, and deed, that makes us a what? Sinner. The wages of sin is what? Death. And that is spiritual death, separation from God, hell, eternity, however you want to think of that, as well as physical death. That's a result of misery that comes along with sin. See, their misunderstanding was sin was their biggest problem in captivity. They thought the Romans were. The truth is, his death dealt with the biggest problem of his people and did establish. His kingdom was established through his sacrifice. Although there was much misunderstanding in that day. Again, Revelation, the worship from there. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, now watch this, by your blood, by your sacrifice, by your death on the cross, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus purchased a kingdom when he died and paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. And maybe you don't understand the cross. and It's a lot of celebration about something that's really gory. And yes, the physical suffering. A lot of movies make all the deal about the physical suffering. The physical suffering was horrible. But the main and the hardest suffering that Jesus endured on the cross was the wrath of God due his people poured out on his son. Jesus took our eternal hell upon himself on that cross and he could drink that cup dry because he was both God and man in one person. And he said before he died, 
it is finished. Jesus satisfied justice for all who by grace would trust in him. And he provided a righteousness through his perfect life and he gives it as a gift. Have you received it? But notice through his death he establishes his kingdom. Not in a way that they thought he would. And look at his humility. The third, this is a sign of misunderstanding for them, but look at the fulfillment and the sign of humility that it is. A king on a donkey. Kings don't usually do that, do they? They ride in big fancy chariots or nowadays limos, you know, or on a big war horse. Jesus, a signal to his mission, a sign of his humility, a fulfillment of the prophecy comes in differently. Jesus had, had a donkey assigned in his sovereignty, knew where it was, called his disciples to get it. You can read that in the other Gospels. It says simply here, he found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. And this is the point. He's fulfilling prophecy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Let me read from Zechariah 9.9. Listen to this. This is Zechariah's words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So see, they weren't wrong to see that the king was coming. But they just misinterpreted how he was going to come and what he was up to in that first coming. Your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. And those, those donkeys in those days weren't, you, we think about donkeys, we think pretty much size of a horse. You know, these were small. If you've seen any films, if you rode one of those donkeys, you just about had to pick your feet up to keep them from dragging the ground. So it looks really funny. Right? Like riding one of the midget horses and have to pick your, pick your feet up. But Jesus is riding in in fulfillment to the prophecy, the king is coming. He's already told his disciples he will be rejected. He will be betrayed. He will be handed over. He will be crucified. And he, thankfully, he didn't leave out. He told him, and he will rise from the grave the third day. But he comes in humbly on a donkey, bringing in salvation. But they even misinterpret this. And I wondered why. But I think maybe they thought back to Solomon. Do you remember how Solomon rode into town when he took power? Let me read it to you. 1 Kings 1, 38 to 40. A lot of intrigue there. I encourage you to go read it. But it says, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jeho Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule. And brought him to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed him as king. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live Solomon. And all the people went up after him. He's going up to take the throne. They went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy. So that the earth was split by their noise. Hyperbole. It was loud. The king is coming in. He's coming in on a mule. Okay, flash forward, that Passover. The king is coming in. He's riding on a donkey. 
Solomon went, took power, executed his enemies, reigned. This was what is going to happen with Jesus. He's coming in. He's our king. He's, he's done these signs. He's proved it. He's going to come and deliver us from the boot of the Romans. He will ride in and reign. But the truth is, He's riding in humbly to die. And He will deliver through His death. Listen, He didn't come the first time to slaughter His enemies. He came to die for them. And guess who was his enemies? Just those old wicked Romans, right? Us. Us. We are all born his enemies. Romans chapter 5 says he came and died for his enemies to reconcile us to God. So we have no stones to throw. At the Jews for misunderstanding, at the Romans for being who they were. In various ways, we all manifested that we are born in sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that all need a Savior. And that apart from Jesus' purifying sacrifice, we are and were His enemies. So He rode in on a donkey, but He wasn't coming to reign. He coming to die. And He had told His disciples previously about that. Jesus came the first time to live in fulfillment of God's law, to provide a perfect righteousness for His people, and then to take their sin upon Himself and die for their sin, for our sin, those of us who trust Him, and then pay that penalty in full and be raised from the grave. The proof that it's all true is the resurrection. And many people have come to faith trying to disprove the resurrection. But listen, I want to I tell you, I want to love you, I want to warn you. The next time he comes, he's not coming in on a donkey. And he's not coming in to die. He will judge the earth in righteousness. Today is the day of salvation. You have the opportunity to, to repent and trust Jesus. But there will come a day when either you die, if you die without faith, or when he returns before you die that you will have to stand on your own and answer, and none of us can pass that test. But look at the, the Jesus that Revelation pictures in chapter 19. This time, He's coming on a war horse. He's coming on a steed. He's coming in power and glory and in judgment. Look at Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... And the one sitting is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He has a cl he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Too much to talk about. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That conquering king that they expected didn't show up at that time. They missed it. Five days later, you see, not necessarily the same people again, but the crowds will be crying, crucify him. 
But that conquering king that they rightly saw in the Old Testament is coming. He's already come as the humble suffering servant. He's already come to live and die for his people's sins and be raised from the grave. But there's a day he's coming back. And when he comes back, you don't want to be outside of his grace and face that part. He's coming again. Are you ready? And by ready, I don't mean have you been good enough. I'll go ahead and answer that for you. You may think you have, you have not. Isaiah tells us all of our righteousness is filthy rags. None of us has been good enough to be accepted by Him. In fact, this is so hard to accept for us, isn't it? None of us have been good at all outside of Jesus. None of us has kept any one of His commandments in thought, word, and deed for 20 minutes, 2 minutes, 10 seconds. But Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. He suffered the wrath due our sins. And He was raised from the grave proving it's all true. And He offers to you salvation as a free gift. You can be reconciled to God as a free gift. How? I'll clean up my act. You can't. You in humility, with grief and hatred for your sin, turn from it unto Jesus and receive and trust in Him as your Savior. What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a short list. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For God so loved the world. We love that verse, right? In this manner God loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever trusts in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, they didn't understand at this point and even that was all woven into the plan so that Christ would be betrayed, would be crucified, would die for His people's sins and suffer the wrath, do our sins and would be raised from the grave, saving us fully. Look at, I'll just mention 16 and following. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness to that fact. Right? They're, they're misinterpreting the outflow of that fact, but they, they're, they're knowing that. They were there. And the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard the sign was done. And then the Pharisees are even saying, you see, we're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The people have gone after him. They're hailing him because their king is coming in who will deliver them from the Romans. The Pharisees are frustrated. And even amping up their plans to kill him. Not believing that he is who he said it was. So everybody in the scene is misunderstanding Jesus at this point. And again, I say before we're too hard on the disciples, we're just as bad. We tend to think that Jesus came to set everything right for us now, right? When hard things happen, we think this shouldn't be this way. We forget that this is a fallen world and our mission is the gospel. Listen, where have you misunderstood Jesus? Maybe you're his disciple. Maybe you're a follower of Christ. Maybe you're trusting in him. Where, I'll just ask you this way. Where are you misunderstanding Jesus? Because we all are at some point. None of us are glorified yet. What, where am I putting false expectations on Jesus? Where am I seeking to set my agenda in life and have Him rubber stamp it? 
The first premise or point in Christianity is what? Deny yourself. <laughs> Take up your cross and follow me. See, maybe these are some of the places, and I don't know all of them, and that's why I want you to go away and think about it this week and pray about it. But some of them, some of the misunderstandings that we have might be things like this. Life should be easier now that I've come to Christ. My fight with sin should be over. Your fight with sin didn't begin till you came to Christ. Yes, He brings us to faith in Jesus and justifies us on the basis of Jesus and declares us righteous, adopts us into His family. We are His children. But it's at that point He begins conforming us. That's justification. Now, sanctification is us growing in the grace that is ours. Us being conformed into the image of Christ. We fight against sin, but we fight in grace with the powerful weapons of God in the Spirit, the Word of God. Applying it to us and setting us free and helping us progressively say no to sin and yes to Jesus. How about this one? Okay, since Jesus come and died and I've come to faith in Him, I should be healthy and wealthy all the time. Well, I've misunderstood something if that's true. And you have too. That, no, that's, see, that's taking... A lot of the people who teach the health and wealth theology, they're seeing things in the Old Testament that like the Jews did, they're seeing things that will be true in the new heavens and the new earth, and they're seeing deliverance, and they expect it all to be for now. So they're misinterpreting the, wood, the word. Their timing, at least, is off. Sometimes it's much more nefarious than that. Did Jesus come to die for all my sin? Yes. Did Jesus come to take away all my misery? Yes, because all misery is an outflow of sin. And sickness is surely one of them. But did Jesus promise me that I would be set free from that automatically right when I come to faith? No, because He said in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. New heavens, new earth. We read it in the 915 class this morning. Go read Revelation 21 and you'll see when He wipes away every tear and when He takes away all death and disease. That's new heavens, new earth. Until then, we live and grow in grace. Some of us are healthier than others and some of us are entrusted with more than others. Just you're responsible to use it for Jesus. Be generous with it. How about this? I should not have lost my job, my house, my health. My loved one. I'll tell you, in some of those things, a way to bend that is to begin to be thankful for all the time that you had with whatever that was that was precious to you. But right now, we still live in a fallen world, and we as Christians go through some of the same difficulties everybody else does. We just don't do it alone. We have a Savior with us. To strengthen us and empower us. And we have the church around us. To encourage us and help us. But in this world you will have trouble. Believe it. Jesus said it. But you can be of good cheer. Because his grace is so big. That we can have encouragement in the midst of our trouble. If we'll look to Jesus. How about this? The Christian life should be a continual high. We default into thinking that don't we? We think something's wrong when we're not feeling things. And sometimes something is. Sometimes we've sinned and we're being disciplined. Or we've been dumb and we're paying stupid tax. Sometimes you've done nothing wrong though. And the feelings and all go away. And it's just a test of your faith. 
to see whether it's based on your feelings or on truth and the gospel. It's easy to trust in the light than easy. But faith is tested when things are hard. Worship should be an emotional high. <sighs> you should be able to worship God in every emotion. Through tears and joy and laughter and pain and sadness. I mean, you get in legalist environments, legalistic environments and everybody just fakes it and walks around smiling and doesn't talk about their problems and nobody grows. Worship is for God. It's setting our hearts on God and, and honoring Him through everything that we do and hearing from Him in His Word and being growth and changed and strengthened and saved. It's not about emotion primarily. It's about truth. And truth is true no matter how you feel. <laughs> how about this one? I hear this a lot. God will never give me more than I can handle. Welcome to failure, if you embrace that. God always gives us more than we can handle. Why? So that we will depend on Him. There's a lot of stuff floating around on Facebook you ought to just delete. Don't get in argument. That's the most unproductive place to argue with people. There's a lot of heresy and a lot of untruth floating around out there. He is our sufficiency. He is our strength. You can't take another breath without Him. I started to say try it, but you can't. I mean, He's sustaining you till the last day. You can hold your breath like a kid and see how long you can do that. But You, you see what I'm getting at? His Word is what we need, and His Word rightly interpreted in context shapes our hopes and shapes our expectations and shapes our life so that we are being reducing at least in our lives our false expectations so that we have less discouragement less disillusionment and we're walking faithfully with Christ listen I'll end with this and I know we could talk about marriage we could talk about a lot of things we have false expectations in almost every area of life let the word shape your expectations. Have you set the agenda for your life and asked God to rubber stamp it? And yeah, you can listen to plenty of people that supposedly are preaching this word that will help you do that. Some who even hold it up and claim they're going to preach it and then don't. Have you set the agenda for your life and asked God to rubber stamp it? Are you holding on loosely and able to say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We're not done yet. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ponder these things. Pray. Ask the Lord to show you where your false expectations are. Especially the ones you're suffering with now. Ask Him to reshape your expectations and purposes in line and in according to His Word. Listen, before you do that, if you don't know Jesus... Focus there. Focus on the gospel that Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, He was raised from the grave the third day, and that He gives salvation as a free gift to everyone who trusts Him, because even the trust is a gift from Him. Will you turn and trust in Jesus? But for those who are trusting in Jesus, that is what I want us to do this week. And listen, walk with us as I, as I just short, brief post about what Jesus is doing on those last days of His life.
and be praying and thinking about what he was doing and why he was doing it and what he has done for you and dying for you and paying the penalty for your sins. But walk with us and share that stuff with us. We want to be evangelistic with it, but we want to grow in grace with it as well. But false expectations fill our lives. Where are they? And how does the word address them? Seek that. Pray with that. And remember and look to Christ every week. But this week, as we try to do that in an intense way on the last week of his life. And as John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Jesus. Trust and rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you and just confess that we, 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 we expect a lot of things from you that are just not in accord with your word. And therefore, we get discouraged and disillusioned and angry sometimes, frustrated, bitter. And then you lovingly discipline us and you show us in your word the truth and that truth reshapes our expectations so that we can walk in joy. Help those who don't know you to turn, to repent, and to trust you, Lord Jesus, for salvation. And those of us who do, be setting us free from our false expectations, from our false thoughts about you and your will. And even in the midst of our struggle, use us as light and salt for your glory and our good. Be magnified and glorified in us as we've already sang. Set us free from all the sin because you are our great God. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.